Acting like an adult isn't always good. Our text this morning for the sermon we've drawn from Matthew chapter 11. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing upon us this day. We pray that you would show us your word, open our hearts and open our minds and open our ears. We might hear your word and then we might do it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When we traveled to Philadelphia, we tried different Philly cheesesteaks. And like a child with no sophisticated convictions on the subject of the Philly cheesesteak, I enjoyed them all. But then I let the adults find out by my posting of my childish pleasure on social media, and everyone jumped all over me. Don't ever eat at Pat's or Gino's. Those are for tourists. You got to go to Delisandro's. No, Tony Luke's. Make sure you get onions and cheese whiz. Sometimes being childish is preferable. As we'll see this morning in Matthew chapter 11, childishness isn't always bad. Childishness isn't always bad. Go to open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. We're going to begin at verse 16. Matthew chapter 11, beginning at verse 16. Now there we see the Lord Jesus Christ saying this, But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children singing in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. In ancient Israel in the first century, there were two big communal events that everyone was a part of, and that is weddings and funerals, one at which you danced and one at which you mourned. And children would often mimic these in play, and so they would sing with one group of the kids on one side, and then those on the other side would respond with some sort of an action. Jesus' generation acted like children regarding the most important things. And i got a question for you. Are we any different? Let's go on to verse 18. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. John the Baptist, what was known as what is a, a Nazarite. Nazarite. Nazarites are a peculiar class of people in the Old Testament. They're people who set themselves apart with a vow for a particular period of time. Sometimes they did it for a lifetime. And they submitted to God, and they didn't drink alcohol. They let their hair grow out. And we see that old covenant Nazarites were warrior priests who set themselves apart for the service of God. John the Baptist was a Nazarite. John the Baptist's mission was one of seriousness, for he was the last old covenant prophet and the one who calls Israel to prepare for the end of exile. Israel's been in exile all these centuries. Because of their disobedience to God, God kicked them out of the land. The Assyrians come and carry them off into captivity. The Babylonians come and carry the southern kingdom off into captivity. And then they're brought back into the land and they're ruled over the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans. They're still waiting to get out from under the hand of Gentile overlords. But John's coming to announce the coming of the king and the coming of the kingdom. He's coming to announce the end of exile. And so his mission was one of deadly seriousness. John was the wild man of the wilderness, and he dressed like Elijah. He had on a hair shirt. He had a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Kids, he ate locusts. He ate great big grasshoppers. Do you know that's actually a clean food in the Old Testament dietary laws? Supposedly, if you grill them, they taste just like shrimp, but I'm not going to try. 
He locusts and wild honey, and the religious leaders said that he was demonically possessed. Going on to verse 19. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Jesus came bringing the feast, that the kingdom of God was coming with him. He constantly feasted, making giant feasts from nothing. He turned water into wine. Jesus' mission was one of joy that Israel's exile and humanity's exile from God was coming to an end. He invited all to come and join the feast. But the religious rulers would stand there with their arms crossed saying, I don't think so. But guess who came in? Sinners, tax collectors were all coming to Jesus. They were coming and repenting and entering the kingdom. But the religious leaders said he was a drunkard, a glutton and a friend of sinners and those deserving of God's judgment. You just couldn't win with the scribes and Pharisees. If you came with a dour expression, calling on the people to repentance, what would they say? He's got a demon. But if he came with joy, bringing a feast with you, then they said of him, he's a friend of sinners. He's a sinner himself. Yet wisdom is demonstrated by deeds, and Jesus had a truckload of deeds. Verse 20, then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. The first century of Israel was a lot like the time in which we live in this. They didn't like the truth when it conflicted with their previously held beliefs. They called good evil, and they called evil good. They were easily triggered to violence. So Jesus denounced them because they would not believe through wisdom. Wisdom which was justified by the deeds done through Him. Friends, do you see here a different Jesus than the one that the modern church likes? We like sweet Jesus. We like the inoffensive Jesus. The Jesus who comes to us and says, hey, your sins are forgiven. Whatever you want to do, you can do. Judge not lest you be judged. You can do anything you want and Jesus is going to wink at what you're doing. Jesus is our great buddy but this isn't sweet, inoffensive Jesus. This is the true Jesus who brings love, joy, and acceptance, but also calls on the world to repent. Verse 21. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you, Korazi, which translates out into furnace of smoke, and Bethsaida, Bethsaida, house of fish, were towns on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, at the very center point of Jesus' ministry. Jesus preached mighty words in their midst. Jesus performed mighty acts in their midst. And yet we're told here they had less faith and would be more liable to judgment than Tyre and Sidon, cities of Gentiles. Tyre and Sidon in the days of Isaiah, a once God-fearing nation and friends of Israel had prostituted themselves to the nations. You may remember in the days of David and Solomon, Tyre and Sidon, the cities of the Phoenicians, were friends of Israel. Hiram, their king, was a God-fearer. He sent craftsmen. He sent down materials for the building of the house of God and for the palace of the kings. But by the time of Isaiah, 
they'd fallen back into their old Gentile pagan ways, prostituted themselves to the nations. In Ezekiel, the king of Tyre follows after the other gods and lifts himself, believing himself to be a god. But they were less hardened and less sinful than Israel, and their judgment will be lighter, says the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 23, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades, for the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom. It would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. More mighty works had been performed in Capernaum than in any other city. Capernaum, Capernaum, which translates out to the city or town of Nahum, the prophet Nahum. This was the headquarters of Jesus' ministry. Many of the great examples of Jesus inside of a synagogue occurred in Capernaum. He healed people in Capernaum. He preached in their synagogue. He did mighty acts. He walked on water in the sea, which came to the shore of Capernaum, and yet they would not believe. They would not believe, and they turned against Jesus. Friends, i got a question for you. When you look across the world and the history of the world, has a nation ever been more blessed than ours is? Has a nation ever accumulated more wealth and blessings than ours has? We're more wealthy, we're more powerful, we're more blessed with peace. We're a nation that's abutted on both sides by oceans. We're the most blessed nation in the history of the world up to this point, yet we are turning against Jesus. And I submit that the reason why we've been blessed is for all of our foibles, all of our problems, all of our sins, and yet we believed in Jesus more than we do now. We've turned against Jesus as well. Will God's hand of judgment not come upon us? Sodom. Imagine that how that would have struck someone in the first century. Your city, Capernaum, is more sinful than Sodom. You can't think of a more sinful city in the Old Testament. Right up there in rivals with Babylon. Sodom, a city that was destroyed for their wickedness. Sodom was as wicked as they come, filled with violence and violent homosexuality, so that God rained down fire from heaven and destroyed it. But Jesus says they were less hardened, less sinful than Israel in the first century. Their judgment will be lighter. Jesus says that if he did the same acts and spoke the same words in Sodom, Jesus, Jesus God-man, Jesus the second person of the triune God, he was there. Jesus says that if he did the same acts and preached the same words in Sodom, it would have remained to that day. Now notice here, we've got something that brings us a little bit of a quandary with the modern American evangelical church. We like the idea of the flattening out of sin. We like this idea of saying all are sinners, and so we can't really bring any sort of judgment to bear. We can never judge anyone. We can't judge outsiders for their actions. We can't judge those in the church that are falling away and apostatizing and bringing heresy into the church because we're all sinners. And if you're a Christian, you're a sinner saved by grace. But notice what Jesus says. He says there's different variances of sin. There's different levels of sin and judgment. There are sins that are worse than other sins. And Jesus calls it out. All share equally in original sin, but all don't sin equally 
and will not receive the same judgment. Going on to verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. We want a sophisticated faith. We want a faith that accommodates the cultural phase of the day. We want a faith that doesn't believe all that rubbish about God creating the world complete. Fire coming down from heaven or the virgin birth. We want a faith that doesn't offend anyone. But friends, real faith stands upon the Word of God. Real faith, when you come to the Word of God and something bothers you about it, you surrender under its authority and says, thus says the Lord, and so it shall be. Real faith is childlike faith. Never look down on the kids in the congregation. Never underestimate their faith. As my old seminary professor Jack Collins used to say, children are trusting machines. It's the adults that have a problem. Real faith in Jesus' childlike faith and childish faith that submits to the Word of God. Childlike faith has been plunging into the darkness for 2,000 years and driving it back with the cross of Christ. Verse 27, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Salvation comes through knowing Jesus, the author and finisher of salvation. Salvation comes through Jesus, who is the second person of the Godhead, spoke the universe into existence and sustains all things. Salvation comes from Jesus, and salvation is finished with Jesus, and knowing Jesus is revealed to those whom He chooses to. Does that bother you? Jesus chooses to reveal Himself to some and not to others. That bothers people. We want to spend all our time saying, why? Why does He reveal Himself to some and not to others? But friends, that's not for us to know. Jesus is in control, not you or I. And Jesus would be gracious and loving and holy if He never extended this invitation to any of us. Verse 28, Come to Me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. But for those who will believe, those who see they need Jesus and want to have their heavy burdens lifted, Jesus lifts their burdens. The heavy burden of the sins of the past that weigh upon us. The heavy burden of not being the right race. Now it's a sin to be white. Kids are made to feel guilty. They carry that around as though they caused that problem. The heavy burden of not being cool enough. The heavy burden of having your life ruined thus far. The heavy burden of knowing God is displeased with you and you're heading to His judgment court. To these, Jesus says, Come to Me. Become like a child. Come to Me. And I will take that burden off of you. I will take that yoke off of you. We don't know what yokes are because we don't live in an agricultural society anymore. Kids, if you don't know what a yoke is, it's a big wooden beam. It's carved out. It's laid over animals. It's laid over specifically oxen. By the way, oxen are not a particular animal. 
oxen or two or more animals that are yoked together. You put this beam on them and it has leather straps. You tie them in and now you direct them wherever you want them to go. They pull heavy burdens and they plow fields for you. And Jesus says that his yoke is a good yoke. Take Jesus's yoke. What does that mean? And what does this mean when you compare it to all the other things Jesus says? In fact, when you weigh it out, you would think that the life as a Christian is made up of blood, sweat, and tears, and indeed it is. It's a life of hardship and trial. It's a life of being conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet Jesus says His yoke is light. What does yoke mean here? It's His way of life. It's easy because it gives you rest for your soul. It's easy because when you're following in the path in which He directs you, you know that it's good and right and God is pleased with you. It's easy because you don't have the nagging doubt of whether or not you're falling under the judgment of God. It's easy because you have the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I hear an amen to that? It gives rest to your soul because you know you're pleasing to God. Sin and separation is a heavy, heavy burden. You have to pretend you're not displeasing God. You have to wonder whether judgment's coming. All the big atheists shake their fists at heaven. All the atheists who delight in tripping up young Christians when they arrive as freshmen on the college campus, almost all of them end up the same way. That when they come close to death, they start to wonder. They start to get scared. They start to wonder if they were wrong all along because everyone dies and there's sin in the world. And they sense something's not right. Something not right out there and something not right in here. And they become fearful. Am I going to close my eyes in death? And what if I was wrong and I stand before God in judgment? You have to pretend you're not displeasing to God. You have to pretend that there's no judgment coming and it's a heavy, heavy burden. But Jesus takes it off. Puts His yoke on you. And you have peace. You have peace. It surpasses the world's understanding. Jesus' burden is light because Jesus already took the judgment for you. I was looking through a book on World War II recently, and I came across one of the most iconic photographs of the war. The picture depicts an Australian soldier who had been shot in the head and blinded by a Japanese sniper in New Guinea as he is led to safety like a little child by a friendly New Guinea villager who found him dying in the jungle. In a similar way, no matter how in control we think we are, we're just blind sinners lost in the jungle of death and judgment. We need to come to the end of ourselves in repentance and see that we are to be led like little children by Jesus. But compared to God, we're so small and so faithless. The Christian faith begins with childlikeness because as we've learned this morning in the Gospel of Matthew, childishness isn't always bad. Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you'd bless us. If there be anyone in here today that does not know you, we pray that by the power of the Spirit, you'd give them childlike faith. And we pray for us as your people. Remind us always that we are to be little children before you with grateful hearts thanking you for what you have done and living our lives in light of it. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.